0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star
1: of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Saskatchewan Premier Scott Mohm on the New Deal the Premier says is necessary for Western Canada. Dr. Colvinder Gill, the president of Concerned Ontario Doctors, on the health care troubles in this country. Ted Morton was the former Alberta finance minister, and uh, we spoke with the former minister on the issue of Alberta separation. Mark Manduka from Citibank on the rising cost of flight shaming. And what happened in Quebec on Monday during the federal election when Quebec has returned so many Bloc Québécois members? Member of the Parti Québécois, Nino Colovecchio, joined us from Montreal. Welcome back, everybody. Roy Greenthal on the Chorus Radio Network. Justin Trudeau after suffering a very serious setback on Monday night by losing majority government after just one term in office, losing more than a million votes, 21 seats, electing not one Liberal MP, in Saskatchewan and Alberta and being elected by pitting Canadians against Canadians. Well, the Premier of Saskatchewan um, made that point and also made it very clear uh, in a post-election message that it's time for a new deal with Canada. And Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Premier, thank you very much uh, for the time and uh, for those who are not Aware specifically of what you're asking and/or or demanding, or reassuring or assuring the prime minister, we need what is it that Western Canada mostly needs and the Canadians need out of this confederation now? Well, thank thank you, Roy. When when I heard the prime minister in his uh,
3: speech on election night uh, talk about how he has heard the the frustration from uh, people in Saskatchewan, people in Alberta, and he wanted to be there to support us. Uh, I thought those were, were awfully nice words, um, but what we need here in these provinces and in other areas of the nation is, is some action. And so we put together a letter very quickly with our our three items that we need action on, we need it on immediately. One was obviously uh, to, to do some further work with respect to the carbon tax, to, to get rid of the carbon tax uh, as it is uh, uh, being imposed on, on, on our hardworking families. The second was... We need to make some changes with respect to how we share wealth in this country. Our equalization formula needs to be uh, changed. And last but not least, uh, we need a full commitment. Uh, not only to the TMX pipeline, which is, is vital to uh, Western Canadian wealth and, and, and really to sustainability of providing sustainable energy to the world, um, but we need a commitment to uh, more than TMX. We need a commitment to a framework that is going to allow us to continue to create wealth in these provinces for all Canadians.
0: And, Premier, no sooner had you you made this expectation known to Mr. Trudeau, who talked about how he heard the people of Saskatchewan and Alberta, you received a tweet from a Quebec Liberal member of Parliament basically telling you to take a hike because, Premier Mo, 70% of Canadians voted to support a national carbon tax, he wrote.
3: And, and and that is most unfortunate uh, with with respect uh, to that type of a of a, a, a really what is an is an arrogant reach out arrogant lack of uh, understanding of what is happening uh, to families as as we've had well over a hundred thousand people here between Alberta and Saskatchewan that have lost their job yes in part due to uh, lower uh, resource prices but in a large part due to uh, policy initiatives that have been put forward over the course of the last four years by the government that he is now part of—a national government that is there to represent not only his constituents but all, but all Canadians. So it was most unfortunate and and most certainly a, a, a step into the the federal politics on on the wrong foot. I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there's been a lot of talk about 70 uh, percent of Canadians supporting. The carbon tax, and I did a little—I'm not the world's greatest mathematician, but I saw that uh, the Conservative Party and then the People's Party of Canada, their combined popular vote was 36 percent, neither supported national carbon tax, so that leaves 64 percent of those who voted— who then split their votes among three parties. That's hardly a a vote for for a carbon tax, and 70% just doesn't work unless it's government math. I know I'm splitting hairs, but I I just find this... I find it irritating because I I just have a sense, Premier, that the voices that want to be heard, that demand to be heard, that deserve to be heard in Western Canada are being... uh, The attempt is being made to mollify you by the returning, diminished federal government. Well... That's exactly
3: what a a, a reach out or a tweet like what we saw um, um, from this particular Montreal MP or newly minted MP uh, is doing is is essentially, I'm just saying there, there, that'll be fine. Well, what I'm hearing uh, from people in this province and and in our neighboring province and in other areas of the nation as well is, is, no, this isn't fine. Uh, These words are are not going to help. What we need here is some some direct action. Uh, Listen, we need it. We need it soon. And, And here's why, Roy. There are a couple of things that are going to happen over the course of the next uh, next couple of months. First, in December, we're going to have the finance minister, whoever that will be, is going to announce the equalization uh, payouts for the next year. We are likely going to see Quebec, this particular MP's riding, uh is in that is in that province receive between 14 and 15 billion dollars. Much of that will be uh contributed from from Saskatchewan and from um uh, largely from Alberta. We're also going to see on January the 1st the carbon tax increase in in Saskatchewan, Ontario, other areas and you're going to see this federal government that is going to attempt to impose uh, the carbon tax at $30 a ton uh on the on the hard working Albertan families. So the the many areas of the nation are going to see a 50% increase in their carbon tax and Albertans are going to see uh the prime minister and the federal government impose uh their federal carbon tax on them. So this is why we need to uh, sit down with the Prime Minister very soon and, and uh, ensure that we can change our direction and find a, a better direction for our nation to be travelling.
0: Premier, one of the frustrations, of course, and it's been voiced many, many times, you're familiar with this more than most of us, including me, is that uh, it only takes two provinces to win a federal election in this country, Quebec and Ontario. Between them, they have 199 seats. It takes 170 seats to win a majority government, which means that you could win both provinces, still lose 29 of the seats of the combined seats, and form a majority government. Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia combined only have 90 seats, that formula can't continue to be in place. It doesn't work. Uh,
3: no, no, well, we, we, we need to continually communicate. Listen, across this nation, traditionally, um, uh, our diversity, I, t- I truly believe, has been our strength as long as we continue to respect and, and converse across this nation and respect one another's opinion. What we are seeing over the course of the last few years is essentially a lack of respect uh, for one another's opinion, and that started... Um, i was part of it a meeting with environment ministers on october the 3rd of 2016 when this prime minister stood up and imposed a carbon tax on the nation while we were trying to work through at his request um how exactly uh, this was going to work and how we were going to achieve our paris accord uh, commitments in in canada and how the provinces would contribute to that that has started this slippery slide the last three or so years um we have a a prime minister with a weak mandate at best a reduced number of seats in the house and i would urge him to very much speak to the premiers across this country speak to myself premier kenny very very soon in the next number of days and let's see if there isn't a way that that this federal this new federal administration can actually address three or four of these issues in very short order and avoid the challenging conversation that we're going to have when they release their equalization formula or the challenging conversation that we're going to have when they increase the carbon tax across this nation by fifty percent and try to impose it on Albertans who just voted against the carbon tax twice in this last year, once in the provincial election, and most recently in the federal election.
0: All right, One more question for you, Premier. What do you, uh, what do, you, what can you say to us about the relative strength of the uh, separation sentiment that we're hearing from uh, Alberta, and I'm also hearing it from listeners who are contacting me from Saskatchewan.
3: There's a real concern on the ground. Uh, the, the the guys I'm talking to, the people I talk to uh, across this province, and I've talked to many over the course of the last well, number of months, and, I, and I've I've seen I've seen it building. And I, I, I it's not just a, a a a sentiment of concern, but I think uh, Mr. Morton had said it's, it's also a sentiment of fear. Um, we are seeing people uh, lose their jobs. Um, in the energy industry, uh, we're seeing people uh, being laid off in other industries as well. We saw Husky uh, make a uh, move a day after the, the federal election. Now, this is is not 100% due to the policies that are coming from the federal government, but they sure are having an impact on, on our ability to ensure that we can continue to create our wealth, create jobs for families uh, in, in this area of the nation. So, the, the sentiments are there. Uh, they're, they're most certainly going beyond frustration. Um, but the, 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 there just doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, another direction. There seems to be these words of, that, that the federal government will be there to support you. But then they turn around and, you know, move forward with uh, legislation like Bill C-69 that really hinders our ability to get our products to market, our energy products. Uh, thereby, they're on rail. Um, which is in turn hindering uh, our ability to get our, our agricultural and our potash or mine products to market. So it, it is time for action uh, from this federal government. We have met uh, the crossroads in this nation, and it's time for uh, this prime minister, this new prime with a, a renewed uh, mandate, a minority government, um, to most certainly uh, sit down with myself, uh, Premier Kenny, other premiers, and... Start the next uh, number of years, and they're going to have to be in a little different direction than they have been. But these sentiments are, are very real, and uh, and they're, they're concerning for me.
0: Yeah, Premier, you mentioned uh, Ted Morton, who was on this program earlier today, the former finance minister for um, uh, Alberta, and who has a column in the Calvary Herald today about this whole issue of separation. We talked uh, with Mr. Morton about that. You talked about fear. Here's what he said, just a couple of seconds of what he said to me about that.
4: In Alberta and Saskatchewan, there are family issues, they are Main Street issues, because when uh, a spouse loses his or her job, uh, all of a sudden, how do you pay the mortgage? How do you pay the car loan? Uh, and then you begin to fight. How do you get the kids to hockey or, or the soccer game? And things go south, and things have been going south here in a very negative way uh, since, 19, since, since 2014.
0: So there's just uh, just a few seconds from Ted Morton. That's what you were speaking about.
3: Absolutely, and those are the people. Uh, many of them that I know myself, I know Premier Kenny, have had to uh, sit down and look in the eye and have a, a conversation with, with respect to uh, they have lost their job and they they have a mortgage payment, they have a car payment, they have children that are in that are in sports, and they have no no reasonable means of, of income as we as as their, their job just is, is non-existent uh, anymore. And this isn't due to a a dip in oil demand for for energy products. We have uh, uh, the opportunity to supply some of the most sustainable energy products in the world from this area of the nation, and we should most certainly make, be making every effort uh, that we can uh, to do that. But that is the crux of the differences in Saskatchewan, in Alberta, in, in many areas of this nation. It is a Main Street issue. It is affecting real people. And it's time for us to understand that as a nation, support one another, support one another's industries and our opportunities, and have that conversation about how we can move forward Uh, in in ensuring that we do have a strong and united Canada in the months and years into the future.
0: Premier Moe, good talking to you. Thank you very much for the time. These are very, very, very important times in our country. Thank you. Thank you, Roy, and thank you for being part of this conversation. Well, uh, thanks for saying that. Scott Moe is the Premier of Saskatchewan. Healthcare, number one issue with Canadians in this past election, number one. Consistently, the number one issue with Canadians across the country. Dr. Colvinder Gill is the president of Concerned Ontario Doctors. Physicians who declare Canada's patients are in need, and uh, those who are in need of palliative care are instead being herded toward selecting euthanasia, particularly dementia patients. That's a very strong statement. We're about to ask Dr. Gill about that. She says it's a dollars and cents issue. And she wrote in an op-ed piece, Canada's health care system consistently ranks last or second last for accessibility to essential health care among all of the wealthiest nations of the world. Ontario has more health care bureaucrats than family doctors. And according to the Canadian Institute for Health Information, Canadian taxpayers spent, listen to this number, $253.5 billion dollars In 2018 alone, or $6,839 per person for an increasingly inaccessible health care system. Well, so much for free health care. Remember that? We get free health care. We've heard that. We heard it during the campaign. Dr. Kulvinder Gill, the president of Concerned Ontario Doctors and a physician in Toronto, joins us on the program. Dr. Gill, thank you very much for the time.
1: Thank you for having me, Roy.
0: Uh, I don't know where to start. I really don't know where to start. I I, I guess the one that sticks out to me most is that eighty-five percent of patients in this country who require palliative care can't get it.
1: Yes, that's that's a, a stat that um, should be alarming. And um, let me ask. I'm sorry. May, let
0: me ask you a question Are You want a speakerphone?
1: I uh, no, I'm
0: not. Okay. It just sounded like it. Okay, go ahead, please. I'm sorry to interrupt.
1: Um, that's a stats that uh, should be um, um, shocking to all Canadians and it's um, and it's inhumane um, to, to imagine that over 85% of country um, or 85% of Canadians in the most wealthiest uh, country in the world don't have access to essential palliative care is 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 completely unfathomable and um, and, and it really speaks to the priorities of this government, and it really speaks to um, to what a dismal state um, our current health care system is, is presently in. What,
0: uh, for those, you know, we hear the term a great deal, palliative care.
1: Mm-hmm. What
0: is palliative care?
1: Well, palliative care um, ensures that um, it, it actually takes care of the entire patient. So it focuses on the whole person and and often that person's family. Um, so it's the precise treatment of the underlying conditions. And there's often a misconception that it is only end-of-life care. But, but the doctors that provide palliative care are skilled not only in pain control, but in the provision um of of all that is uh needed to allow that patient to have a life that is free of as much um, um, free as much um restriction as possible Mm -hmm. and um and 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 it's inhumane and it's unconscionable that 85 percent of canadians don't have access to palliative care
0: it is it is i heard that number before and it is because people require Palliative care and it's often uh, complementary to end of life care.
1: Absolutely. Now, absolutely.
0: Now you said to me off the air, and I want to be sure that I get this correctly, that um, and the, the euthanasia debate, the right to die, the right to physician assisted death, is a major issue now. It was an election issue. It's an, it was an issue in the Quebec courts, and that mm-hmm. what, that's what made it a national issue. Uh, you have great concern about the euthanasia issue, and as I understand it. Because it's your feeling, sense, um, if you, 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 your understanding that patients are being directed toward choosing and uh, assisted death?
1: Um, to be very clear, I think a patient should have the option for euthanasia, but that option can only exist if there's um, equal uh, funding and equal access to all options. And presently, patients, as as we know, over 85% of patients don't have access to palliative care, and the access to essential healthcare is 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 in a terrible crisis in our country, and and yet patients are guaranteed access to death uh, within uh, five to ten days, and 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 we are now having um, euthanasia appear in Canadian quote unquote treatment guidelines for certain conditions. Hold um, on,
0: hold on, say that again.
1: We're having euthanasia appear as, as "quote unquote" treatment guidelines for certain conditions. Um, last week, the um, Canadian Society for Palliative Care Physicians of uh, um, here in Canada actually wrote wrote a um, a letter in the Canadian Medical Association journal about their concern that uh, um, euthanasia is being um, lumped in. In, in the same treatment paradigm as um, palliative care, when there are two very distinct entities. Uh, in its definition by the World Health Organization, in its definition by the uh, Council for Palliative Care of of um, Canada, and it's and it's a definition by the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians. So we're really blurring the lines here, and it's and it's immensely scary, um, especially when there was a policy paper that came from. Sick kids, um, or just, or oh, last year, where um, in the piece they said, "quote that there isn't a meaningful, practical, or ethical uh, difference for the patient between being consensually assisted in dying in the case of oh, euthanasia and being consensually allowed to die in the case of a refusing life-sustaining interventions." So basically, what they were saying is um, they were. F- attacking the fundamental premise of the practice of of, of, a, of a medicine by saying that by claiming that there is no difference between allowing a patient a natural death versus taking an action to cause a death and that's there's really a huge concerning. difference there's a absolutely. huge difference absolutely but these are the bioethicists that are framing Healthcare policy, and 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 now we're having more and more voices of reason come forward, which is really important. There was a uh, very important um, uh, piece written um, in uh, policy options um, by a professor in uh, law and, and in health policy um, out in Montreal, um, who had said that we need to talk uh, a lot that we seem to talk a lot about helping the sick elderly and the disabled to die. But what we're missing is a conversation of how to help them live. And, um, and, and, and what he said, which was very powerful was that we, uh, that the debates around euthanasia seem to be um, centering around the or the indignity of actually living in a defective body but too little is said about the indignity of living in a defective society. Right. Well, Dr.
0: And Dr. Gill, uh let's get on to a couple of other issues here that uh, that are hugely significant. Mm-hmm. And and really euthanasia should not be a treatment option. That's absolutely that's repulsive. Um and and if 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 it's a dollars and cents issue and I believe um you've said that's what it is, right? It's it's about dollars, For as far as yeah, the bureaucrats are concerned.
1: Yeah, so there was a um, another study that was published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal or just t- or two years ago that found that um, 5% of the population here in Ontario accounts for over two-thirds of our health care costs. And there was another paper published just two years ago in the same Canadian Medical Association Journal, which... Um, was calculating the quote substantial savings of um, to the healthcare system um, in terms of increasing uptake and um, uh, um, of of patients choosing to die.
0: Okay, so so it's cheaper mm-hmm. to help somebody to die than it is to help somebody.
1: Yeah, so I think we really need to. Start I mean,
0: wait a minute. Hold on. This is a this is a policy paper, right? This is a is, policy that, is that what it is? It's a policy paper.
1: It's a paper that was, um, um, so the paper that was looking at the cost to the healthcare care system was actually funded by the Ministry of Health. Um, oh, boy, oh, so, so
0: let me let me take a break here and we'll, we'll come back because there's something else that we have. I, a couple of things I want to ask you. One of the issues has to do with the 5 million Canadians who have no family physician because the system starts to break down right there uh, if you don't have a family doctor and you're reliant on, uh, on on an alternative, which may be a walk-in clinic, which may be in an underserviced area. So the walk-in clinic is hardly a walk-in clinic. You might have to wait two weeks before you can walk into the walk-in clinic. There's that issue, but there's also how doctors are responding and the pressures doctors are living under. We're going to come back with Dr. Colvinder Gill. She's the president of the Concerned Ontario Doctors, and she's a physician practicing in Toronto. <laughs> Uh, we've been talking about euthanasia, and boy, I, I'm I'm kind of stuck on this euthanasia being offered as a treatment option. My God, uh, where are we headed? Um, and I'm all in favor of a patient having the right to say, I want an assisted death. here. here here's what I'm facing. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to face it. I'm of sound mind. And, but not sound body, and I want that right, and I'm I'm with that person 100 percent of the time. But if somebody puts a piece of paper in front of you and says one of the treatment options here is euthanasia, you get somebody who's depressed or in the, or, or unable to, you know, to, to, to properly uh, digest that information. That's a that's a serious issue, uh, Dr. Gill. What about let's get at the, the the doctors themselves in this in this country? You're dealing with doctors and representing concerned doctors in Ontario. But what is the reality for physicians, for frontline physicians like yourself?
1: Um, doctors on the front lines are are burning out. They're burning out, um, unable to provide their patients with the uh, essential health care that they need, unable to pre- um, to actually connect their patients to the essential health care that they need. The burnout rate in Ontario is presently reported as being 63%, which is higher than the national Average of 50%. And not many patients realize, but burnout very quickly leads down a road of compassion fatigue, substance abuse, depression, and suicide. And doctors have the highest suicide rate of any profession. And we have governments that are completely ignoring this public health crisis. And and, um, we have, as you had mentioned earlier, we have an unprecedented amount of bureaucrats. In our health care
0: system. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you told me, and I said, I have to tell you, I sat up straight, and then I looked at some of the opinion pieces that you've written, and I and and I look at this, this information, given the fact we have five million Canadians who have no family doctor, and that was a central issue during the election. Ontario, this is the province of Ontario. I'm not, I don't know what the other provinces are like, but Ontario has more health care bureaucrats than family doctors. Mm-hmm. That speaks
1: volumes yes.
0: volumes on so many different
1: levels Yes, and that's something that's actually seen across canada so if you compare um, canada to say germany for example which similar to our country spends about 11 percent of its gdp on on health care germany has nearly double the number of doctors per capita compared to canada double, it has double double it has nearly tripled the number of our of our hospital beds per capita, but yet it only has six percent of our healthcare bureaucrats per capita. So, so there's a, a huge disconnect. Okay, so hold on. Let's let's just do, let's do, let's just do. Going.
0: Sorry, let's do this again. Germany has let's, uh, doctors, numbers of doctors per patients? double, double,
1: double the number of doctors per capita.
0: Okay, and hospital beds,
1: triple the number of hospital beds per capita,
0: and the cost.
1: Um, they, oh, they also, similar to us, spend 11% of their GDP on, on um, health care.
0: Okay, so now you have said, and you've written, that um, evidence shows that uh, Canada is, uh, here's the quote, Canada's health care system consistently ranks last or second last for accessibility to essential health care among all of the wealthiest nations in the world. Is that true?
1: Yes. When you look at all of the OECD countries, we're consistently at the bottom. And um, and and the Canada Health Act, um, we fail to meet two of the basic pillars, um, where access to healthcare now means access to a waitlist, and 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 that too is further limited by a patient's postal code, uh, which which are in direct a violation of the Canada Health Act. But the um, well, the Canadian government doesn't seem to care as long as this illusion exists that there is quote-unquote free health care, which is very, very uh, concerning, especially when the Canada Health Act was first adopted in um, 1984. The original intent was for the federal government to pay for 50% of all hospital and all, and all medical care costs. The federal government's share is now only 15%. So there's a shortfall of nearly a $1 billion, a hundred billion dollars annually. Um, so it's no surprise that the Canada Health Act is failing to uphold its own pillars. Okay. And 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 this is why it becomes even more concerning when politicians during the forty-day campaign were rather than uh, actually acknowledge the harsh reality of our healthcare crisis, rather than acknowledge the failures of our healthcare system, they were. Um, coming up with grossly uncosted or undercosted uh, services to further add on to our ailing healthcare system. Right, Dr. Gill. On support. We're going
0: to, have, yeah, like uh, we'll uh, every dog, every fam, every Canadian is going to have a family doctor or a nurse practitioner. Said Trudeau, as though so that's going to happen. The five million who don't have one. I'm sorry, but we have ran out of time on this occasion. But we have to have you back. There's so much more that has to be talked about, Dr. Gill. Thank you for the time.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Roy.
0: Good talking to you. Dr. Colvinder Gill is the president of Concerned Ontario Doctors and a physician in Toronto. Since the federal election, Jason Kenney of Alberta, Scott Moe of Saskatchewan. Premier Moe will be joining us in an hour's time. And uh, the question really starts to revolve around what we've been hearing about and the sentiment, that's the sentiment that is spreading in Alberta on uh, separation from Canada. Just how significant is that sentiment? How powerful is it? What are the potentials for it? Ted Morton is a former Alberta Energy and Finance Minister, fellow at the University of Calgary, School of Public Policy, and co-author with Stephen Harper and four others, prominent Albertans of the 2001 Alberta Firewall Letter, which was delivered to Premier Ralph Klein. So how serious is Alberta separation sentiment? And... Um, Uh, Mr. Morton says the challenge is how to challenge constitutional reform toward Alberta and Saskatchewan, particularly to counter the growing we want out of Canada sentiment. Ted Morton has a column on this issue of separation in the Calgary Herald today. Mr. Morton, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Good morning, Roy. Uh, Good afternoon there, I guess. It's afternoon here. It's it's morning where you are. Yeah, It, it sort of speaks to where we are. We're in two different zones. In this country, or maybe three or four, we really are a we really are a regional reality more than a national entity, aren't we?
4: That's both a, a blessing and a curse. It obviously is a source of diversity and excitement and economic uh, opportunity and growth. But at the moment, it's we're getting the negative side of it. That there's a very very serious problem uh, out here in Saskatchewan and Alberta, which the last federal campaign did not communicate effectively to uh, voters and families in, uh, in Central and Eastern Canada. And so there's been a very, very negative reaction to last Monday's results uh, uh, in the West.
0: Let me just quote a, a line or two from your column that's in the Counter-Herald today. Mainstream media and commentators are re- reassuring readers that this disturbance will dissipate. Of course, the 70% of voters in Alberta and Saskatchewan who voted for the Conservatives and now find their provinces with not a single MP and the new Liberal government are angry... But this is just a passing phase. Albertans will get over it, and we'll be back to business as usual soon enough. You're right, but they are wrong, and they are wrong for two reasons. What are the reasons?
4: Uh, first is they've missed it. It's not just about anger. It's about fear and fear of losing jobs, the ripple effect that is is happening. Uh, uh, the day after the election, Husky Energy laid off 200 employees. That's We have over 100,000 people who've lost jobs in the last uh, a uh, couple of years. And uh, during the election campaign uh, and in the national media, uh, pipelines were talked about as an infrastructure issue, a financial issue, a boardroom issue. And yeah, they're all of that. But in Alberta and Saskatchewan, they're family issues. They're Main Street issues. Because when uh, a spouse loses his or her job, uh, all of a sudden, how do you pay the mortgage? How do you pay the car loan? Uh, and then you begin to fight. How do you get the kids to hockey or, or the soccer game? and things go south and things have been going south here in a very negative way uh since 19 since since 2014. Uh, in the u.s there's been a re- big rebound in the oil and gas economies in states like north dakota texas wyoming colorado and here it's stayed bad because of our pipeline issue so uh, this is a people issue out here not just a abstract infrastructure or finance issue and uh, fear doesn't go away until the danger that causes fear is taken away and and now with the re-election of the Liberals, you have Bill C69, C48. Those are now permanent policy. So people are still scared, and this isn't going away.
0: Fear is a is a tremendous motivating factor, and uh, I've been hearing from Albertans for the last several years on the issue of the economy being in trouble and and people losing their jobs and 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 uh, you know get, re- receiving emails, for example, that. It, almost bring you to tears with the, with the, with the, with what people are facing and yet uh, I was reading columns over the last couple of days from uh, folks based in uh, let's say Toronto and uh, the columns essentially are saying to people in Alberta and Saskatchewan get over it what's wrong with you you don't have a case you can't separate you'll be landlocked you won't have any tax any tax base or just you're just blowing in the wind and I'm thinking either they don't understand or B, they do understand, and they're just trying to um, uh, impress other columnists who are writing similar stuff. But it doesn't help to push that issue forward on a national
4: platform. No, it, it not. And um, I, as I said, they're, they're wrong for two reasons. The second is is there's a growing realization that the vulnerability of of, of the Western economies uh, is uh, is structural. It's not just from this election to that election, um, Alberta's seen uh, just an average of twenty billion dollars a year out of Alberta in the last decade uh, in fiscal in transfers and equalization payments. Um, if you go back to 1961, it comes to six hundred eleven billion dollars. And uh, how do you? And of course, most of this has gone to Quebec. And there's the growing realization that. Uh, this is kind of locked into the system cuz you see something similar in places like Spain and Italy where the national governments there raid the economically wealthier regions in the north or around uh, um Catalonia to win elect to buy votes elsewhere and so this is kind of baked into the system and people are beginning to think we're not going to get out of this vulnerability until this, some of the rules change
0: i don't want to see my country break up i love canada and uh in 2017 in August, I had the opportunity to drive from southern Ontario to uh, to Vancouver, and so I went through all the provinces and, you know, that I had to pass, and one of them, of course, was Alberta. And I felt very fortunate to have this country available to me in the way that it is as a Canadian citizen. But at the same time, I, I do understand the the emotion that we're hearing from Alberta. And there's something that you wrote in your in your column, and I pilfered it. Uh, for my for for a tweet that I put up, but I also then followed that with saying that I pilfered it from a guest we'd be talking to today, and that's you. <laughs> so I didn't I didn't claim credit for it. Well, that's the, 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 imitation's the
4: sincerest form of flattery.
0: Well, you made the point. And I just want to quote your column. The sad fact is that the Liberal Party doesn't need any votes from the West to form government. To form a majority government, you need to win a minimum of 170 seats. Ontario with 121, Quebec with 78 combined have 199 or 56% of the MPs. And so I just did a little more math and I, and I tweeted out, So you could win Ontario and Quebec and still lose 29 of those combined seats and form a majority government to the exclusion of the other, of the contributions, voter contributions of the eight other eight provinces. How could that possibly be considered fair?
4: well uh two comments uh, that is the issue right now I, I mean there it's a gut issue the 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 issue of, of, of people losing homes and cars and 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 family uh family breakup uh but it's being also being captured as, as a fairness issue and i think if you look at uh premiers kenny and mo uh, and what they've said uh in the week or so since last monday i think you'd see the, the word fair and fairness repeated over and over again and so that's that's become the issue uh, second, your second point, though, about uh, Western Canada, uh, I think Western Canada is actually one of the most patriotic parts of Canada. Um, I know uh, certainly on Remembrance Day uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, all the communities have uh, special services, special ceremonies on Remembrance Day and uh, luncheons afterwards. And and um, Western Canadians are proud to be Canadians, so it's 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 shameful and and, and and sad that uh, we've reached the point that we're at right now.
0: So, what happens to the um, the, uh, the you know call it the secession movement or or or, uh, or or leaving Canadian Confederation? What happens to that? And what are the roles you mentioned the two premiers? What are the roles that Premier Kenny and Premier Mo have to play, or or they can play?
4: Well. Uh, the problem is there's a, a, a almost a volcano of separatist sentiment uh, erupting. There are a couple of online websites. Uh, one is your your reader your listeners could uh, check them out. One's called uh, uh, Wexit, you know Western Exit Wexit. Uh, I think on election day it had, had two or three thousand signatures on it or members. I think today it's 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 over two hundred or two hundred and fifty thousand people have signed up on it. <laughs> That's a lot of people. And there's another one. There's an online petition change now. The West wants out that I think there are over 100,000 signatures, too. So the challenge for Premiers Kenny and Mo, uh, you know, they see the unfairness, uh, the kind of benign neglect, but it doesn't look very benign anymore of of the Liberal Party specifically and, and, and just generally Central Canadians' unawareness that this is – this energy issue is a people issue, not just an infrastructure or corporate issue. How can they channel this volcano of, of fear and a mixture of fear and anger into meaningful and productive constitutional reforms? This is going to be tough, and uh, I think they're looking at a number of options, and, and you, I think you're going to see uh, quite a bit from those two premiers in the coming weeks.
0: Can you stay with us a few minutes longer?
4: I can. Okay.
0: I won't keep you too long. We just have to take a quick break here, and then we'll come back with uh, with Ted Morton, executive fellow with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy and a former minister of energy and finance in Alberta. He has a column on this whole issue of Alberta separation and the what's going on in the Calgary Herald today, and we're talking to him about that. I want to talk to Mr. Morton about uh, the issue of equalization and uh, the premier of Alberta suggesting, well, let's talk about the possibility of a referendum and uh, what that may, in fact, mean to the equalization formula. Ted Morton is my guest, uh, and uh, we're talking about the column that he has in the, in the uh, Calgary Herald today and uh, the issue of separation, the emotion that's uh, roiling through the province of Alberta. Uh, Mr. Morton, also an executive fellow at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy and a former minister of energy and finance in alberta let's get to the finance end of things uh mr morton and i do appreciate you sticking around what about this issue of equalization that that brings us to
4: at least one specific and important cornerstone of this whole problem does it not very much so and going back to the prime minister's comments on election night i guess my sort of blunt response would be you know talk is cheap show me the money (laughs) and and in in alberta the, the the money is huge uh The average amount of money that leaves Alberta to Ottawa, the net, if you take everything that Ottawa sends to Alberta and then everything that Alberta sends to Ottawa, the net difference is average $20 billion a year. Uh, Jason Kenney's budget that he tabled uh, earlier this this, uh, past week uh, has a $9 billion deficit. That is the eighth or ninth deficit in a row. It's the fifth uh, nine or ten billion deficit in a row. So you're sending twenty billion dollars a year to Ottawa and you're running nine billion dollar deficits. And all these Albertans that are sitting around who've lost their jobs and are struggling to make mortgage payments hear that and read that and say, you know, what the hell? Uh, and so I, I think uh, Premier uh, Kenny has, well, he campaigned in the leadership and then in the election this spring. To have a, uh, a referendum on equalization, I believe it's in October of 2021, next year. Uh, no, two a year and a half from now, in the same time as the uh, provincial municipal elections.
0: So, last question for you: Do you mind predicting? Do you have a sense of what's going to happen as we look down the road, as far as we possibly can, with any degree of—I uh, don't want to say certainty, but any degree of uh, a sense that we may be correct? What do you see happening?
4: Well, I just say if, if there was a referendum like that was held today, I think you'd get uh, to abolish equalization. I, it would get north of, of 80 or 85 percent of Albertans. Uh, but to go back to your point about Al- Western Canadians uh, being Canadians and being proud to be Canadians, it's true. Uh, most, I think the overwhelming majority don't want to uh, succeed. But I think a growing number saying the status quo is just as unacceptable. And What I wrote uh, in the Herald is there's lots of constitutional room between these two extremes of status quo and secession for a fair deal. And you can hear a lot about a fair deal, but this is going to require some understanding and cooperation from Ottawa, from the prime minister, and more than just talk. And quickly. Uh, And and quickly, too, because uh, both these premiers uh, are, I would, characterize them with both of their parties are populist parties. They put a lot of emphasis on grassroots democracy and listening to voters. And the voters are, uh, they're not talking, they're screaming right now.
0: I appreciate the time. Thanks so much, uh, Ted Morton. Thank you. Yeah,
4: thank, thank you for bringing this issue to the attention of a broader audience. All right. Uh, Ted Morton is the former finance
0: minister for the province of Alberta and is a fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. <music> I've been reading some opinion pieces uh, by columnists who are just sneering, virtually sneering at Alberta, or Albertans, who are pressing for a separation option or some real decision-making about it, and I I don't see the point. I don't see the point of sneering at Albertans. It's not going to accomplish a single thing. Telling people who are very emotionally engaged... That What you're thinking and what you're doing and what you're saying and what you're planning and what your concerns are is irrelevant, and here's why it's irrelevant. You're not going to get anywhere with that, so stop it. There are too many people who are voicing opinions, and uh, and they're doing it to impress their peers. Oh, Joe wrote a piece about how uh, ridiculous the separation argument for Alberta is, so let me top him. No. Listen. Try that first for whatever that's worth. Now, um, I read a story about Citibank and uh, the research they've done on flight shaming. You know, that when you fly, if you take a commercial flight, you're in fact adding to the climate change woes and you're causing a problem, so you shouldn't fly or you should buy carbon offsets. There's a lot of talk about in the during the election election campaign with the Liberals two planes, and uh, the Liberals saying, well, they bought carbon offsets for the two planes for the campaign. So flight shaming is real. It will affect business. It will affect airlines, and uh, the carbon offset purchases may. And I'm just looking at the story here. Offsetting plane carbon emissions may be ten times higher than the airline industry currently estimates. This is really fascinating information. And joining us on the program is Mr. Mark Manduka. He's Associate Director of Research and Managing Director with Citigroup's European Research Department. Mark, thank you very much uh, for the time. Were the airlines ready for for this? Was there any, any sense that this flight shaming issue would become as significant as your research points it to be?
5: Roy, thank you. Uh, thank you for the time uh, on the show and, and good afternoon. Um, you summed it up beautifully, I think, on the topic of flight shaming. Um, it is this kind of inherent guilt uh, that, as you say, individuals feel when one flies, and specifically about one's carbon footprint. Uh, it gets to your question, it gets uh, a very mixed response. Um, even across the industry, you have different people, both uh, the airlines and the industry bodies, you know, all debating about whether this really is an issue. Some people say it's only 2% of, uh, of of total carbon emissions. But actually, the nuance is very important. And your point about were the airlines ready for this, this has been a topic that's been around for a long time. But what's really captured, I think, the imagination um, of, the, of the industry right now, is that people suddenly understand that a single flight, let's take an example, a flight from London to Los Angeles, can admit as much as you know 1650 kgs of carbon dioxide you know that in and of itself is potentially as much as 10% of a typical canadian's annual allowance so the funny thing here is is that it's a big thing for a certain part of our population and i think that's what's really kind of gathered momentum in the last few months particularly as you know out of the mainland european market
0: mm-hmm so it's the it's the percentage of the population that uh, has that concern, the flying population, the flying public, and what the mm-hmm. uh, and the impact that they will have, maybe more so than the commercial flyers, uh, the commercial industry, the impact they'll have on the in the industry. I find this really interesting that you found that offsetting plane carbon emissions may be ten times higher than the airline industry currently estimates. And then I found uh, another piece in the story which uh, shows that economy seat costs will rise 3.8 billion to to 2, 3.8 billion dollars U.S. per year. Explain, please.
5: Yeah, so a couple of things you mentioned there. So first of all, when you said a certain ilk of the population, what I'm really referring to there is not so much that the people that are flying are feeling the flight shame in some of these corporates or, or social environments. It's actually that, let's take an example. So let's take the UK. So 70% of flights are taken by 15% of the people. Mm -hmm. And like most things at the moment, as as we see in in different parts of the world, that that bifurcation is obviously something that's going to get targeted. Uh, If you look at the the American market, 12% of the North American population fly on average 14 times a year uh, and are responsible for two-thirds of the continent's plane emissions. So all of a sudden you can see that it's not 2% of the pie. It's actually, for some people, it's as much as 10 to 20% of their individual pies. It's the imbalance that I think has caught momentum in the press. Uh, on your point about carbon credits, the truth is, is that although we've had carbon credits for a long time, what's interesting about it is, is that there hasn't actually been a standardized way of charging for them. If you think about who, who offsets their carbon exposure, it's about 1% um of the total mainland european market actually offsetting their carbon exposure the numbers not too too dissimilar globally so carbon offsetting is still a very nuanced scheme i think and you know the thing the things that came out of this piece is we actually did a bottom-up study of how much it would offset you know a certain acre a certain forest to offset a certain plane journey and we found that there was huge bifurcation in the numbers um, and that's what we were referring to in terms of the 10 times. It's an extreme, but it made the point that this is still a very nascent concept for some people in terms of offsetting their um, their flights.
0: Okay, so Mark, for the average person who may be planning on going va- on vacation or may be looking yeah. down the road a year and saying, I'm going to have to take a flight to this particular geographical destination or another geographical destination, what should they expect as far as fare increases are concerned? Are we looking at a very quick Escalation, and I suppose if that happens, that would potentially have a, or would have a significant impact
5: on the health of the airline industry, would it not? Well, to answer your question, it's always going to be small numbers um, because you know the airline industry has very thin profit margins. Um, so, to answer your question, a short haul flight typically you can expect the carbon offset to be anywhere between a, a five to nine euro wing. So, Zurich, Zurich to Milan in uh, in Europe would be five euros. Uh, Whereas London Heathrow to Frankfurt would be around €8. Whereas a long haul flight, then the numbers for economy start to wrap it up quite significantly. You end up basically in a situation where London Heathrow to New York JFK will be about €40. Whereas Dubai to Sydney, as an example, could be about €100. So Long haul is really where the pinch will begin to get felt, um, particularly for families of four or five, where you have to multiply those numbers by four or five. I think in terms of kind of aggregated numbers, let's not let's not kind of overplay the you know the the overall percentages but what i am saying is is that a certain portion of the population is travelling a lot more than the other portion of the population and therefore it's not fair just to look at it from an aggregated pie you should look at what portions of the pie are travelling more as i've already mentioned and let's bring this back home as well um you know if we take an example let's take a You know, let's 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 take a route. Right. So let's take um, the typical Canadian. What do they spend per year in terms of per capita carbon dioxide emissions from fuel consumption? It's roughly around 15 tons. And as I mentioned, just to put that into context, you know, if you take a typical London to New York City flight, you're basically you're basically doing about a ton of carbon dioxide to put it into context.
0: Okay, I'm just trying That's to understand. Numbers. I'm trying to understand the numbers that I saw in the story, such as uh, yep. every one percent increase in average fares because of higher aviation yes. taxes could cost uh, cut airline passenger volumes yes. by zero so point six five percent. So,
5: in in real so terms, what does that mean? Yeah, so very simple. So, if you raise prices by one percent mm-hmm. uh, on an airline, the typical offset in terms of price elasticity, and all that means is basically a one percent increase in price, how many people would fly less? it would be a minus 0.65% impact on demand. So if prices go up by 1%, you basically have a 0.65% drop in demand as a result. Okay. It's, it's effectively a price elastic market. On that same point, let's just make this very clear for you, Roy. On the leisure market, if I said to you the airlines had to eat the entire cost, okay, going back to this point of thin operating margins, if they had to eat the entire cost on the economy portion, of these carbon offsets, i.e. it went through their profits, it would basically impact 27% of their profits by 2025. And then on top of that, if it was the corporate market, that would be a further 17% to their profits. So global profits here, if the airlines were to eat it, it could impact their global profits by 44% is the point. Like I said, small numbers on the top line, big issue for profits on the bottom line for some very operationally-geared and thin-margin airlines.
0: Very serious business.
5: Very much so. And, of course, the next point on that, Roy, is obviously the governments will react as well, which is what you alluded to. And we've already seen this in Europe, but we will see this continuum of a trend where governments ultimately, I suspect, try and use this as as an avenue for tax receipts Um, for good purposes, obviously, but that that will be the ultimate output of this. Not only do we get airlines trying to push this this incremental cost onto you, the consumer, Roy, you actually end up in a situation where the governments compound that cost by pushing through extra taxes. You've seen this in Germany most recently, uh, and also you've had a French eco-tax as well. So although this all sounds very European-centric, this will become increasingly more of a global phenomenon, Roy.
0: So, Mark, one more question. Is this a temporary phenomenon? Do you think the global population will tire of this this idea? They'll have they'll be involved for a specific period of time and then walk away from it. Or is this an idea, an issue a philosophy, an approach that is only going to grow?
5: Okay, I don't think I don't think it it can just be swept under the rug. I'll give you a tangible example, Um, because many people ask me the whole snowflake question: Is this just going to be some sort of phenomenon that disappears and you know the flash in the pan? Um, but aviation's share of global carbon emissions, as we discussed, is around 2%. But fundamentally, as with other industries, if, if everything else remains static um, in the airline sector, we would end up actually, we could see that 2% rise to 10%, or even actually twenty by 2050, 24% should the industry stay static in emissions, while others obviously improve, as you know. That's the thing that I, I it sits with me. Aviation ultimately is 13% of greenhouse emissions for transport it can't be ignored it's something that's getting a lot of traction through the theme of flight shaming and although it's nice to just sweep it under the rug and say this is just something for you know uh, instagram and 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 for snowflakes i just I, i unfortunately i can see how corporates will react to this and there'll be more videoing um of business trips which will mean less business trips um there'll be There'll be more shame felt by the consumer. And I would even take it as far to say as one day you could see a scenario whereby actually the airlines can't make the consumer feel so much shame, quote-unquote, that they actually start giving you red and green seats, green seats for those who have offset and red seats for those who haven't. Oh. So, you know, compared to taking the train, emissions from a, from a flight is somewhere around 7 to 11 times higher. And that's really grabbed hold of Europe and I appreciate that North America doesn't have the same rail network, and therefore that the adage probably doesn't doesn't you know hold true to the same degree. But it's definitely something that that is that seeping through the market, and I don't think you can just sweep it under the rug.
0: Mark, I really thank you for coming on the program and explaining uh, what your research has shown. This is uh, this is extremely impactful on everyone, and it'll it'll only continue to, to be so. I I, uh, I I surmise. Thanks again for the time.
5: Well, yeah, absolute pleasure. of your show. Thank you so
0: much. All the best. Mark Manduka is the Associate Director of Research and Managing Director within Citigroup's European Research Department, Citigroup, of course, Citibank, and uh, their associated businesses. From the cradle of the Separate from Canada movement, Quebec, the question is, after Monday, did Quebecers return The BQ to Parliament as the third party eclipsing both the NDP and the Greens nationally because the separation sentiment may be on the rise again in the province of Quebec or was sending large numbers of PQ voters or uh, members to Ottawa a different signal. Nino Clavecchio is a member of the Parti Quebecois, former candidate for the party in provincial election, radio talk show host, marketing expert. Spoke with him last weekend. So, Nino, here we are, Friday. Last weekend, we weren't sure what was going to happen. Now we know. Um, Why did Quebecers vote so strongly for the Bloc Québécois? And is this a new Bloc Québécois or just a much more savvy Bloc Québécois? Um,
2: I would say a much more savvy Bloc Québécois, but one that uh, essentially uh, Yves-François Blanchet uh, resurrected, resurrected this party. Um, and it's much more to do with the conditions uh, surrounding the province right now and the, ele- and the, uh, the electoral feeling really across the country. Um, nobody at the Bloc Québécois believes that they received a mandate for separation here or a mandate to go out and disrupt the Federation. So you can all rest easy. I, this is not going to happen. Um, I think the Bloc Québécois in the past has, um, has shown that it, uh, it can go to Ottawa. And provide a very productive opposition. So this is what we can expect. No one in Quebec right now is, has the appetite to reopen this separation debate.
0: So the Bloc Québécois will represent essentially be uh, what was been talked about for Western Canada and that is a regional party. That's what the Bloc Québécois is then for the yes. province of Quebec. Absolutely and
2: uh, it, it's a trend. Obviously that we see the same thing out west. The one uh, who is the most likely to break this country up is not uh, Blanchet, but uh, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> so the most likely candidate to break up Canada right now is our Prime Minister. Um, he, he needs to listen to uh, listen to different uh, regions and understand what their needs are, and try and, and stop trying to lord this national policy on the rest of the country, and understand that each region has its own needs, and and per, perhaps it's time to give provincial governments a little more autonomy.
0: Uh, do you see the the vote in Quebec as a rejection of the Trudeau Liberals? They did win more seats than the BQ, but not very many. And the BQ went up, and the Liberals went down.
2: Yeah, I think it. I think it's uh, the 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 um, Quebecers uh, obviously didn't see an alternative in in uh, Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives. So right off the bat, that eliminated that process. And uh, and uh, Jagmeet Singh never really caught on with Quebecers until the end of the election, when he started being a little more present and people uh, started knowing him a little more. But, you know, it never really gelled between the two. So if you were anti Justin, which is not not difficult to do for if you're from this province, then your your choices were not very uh, were were not um, they weren't very wide. You either went with the bloc or with the Green Party. Um, uh, And uh, and people rallied against around the block because they felt there are a couple of issues you know that Justin just doesn't understand you know like Bill 21 is supported by 70 percent of Quebecers for him to state even on the first day after his re-election that he is going to go out there and defend defend the people who oppose it uh, and help defend you know oppose it in the Supreme Court. Um, is a total disrespect for Quebecers. And this is the message they sent him on his election. So if he wants to continue to to, to stimulate the separatist movement, he can just go on and do that, and he won't be helping himself or Canadians.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you have a soft spot in your heart for Albertans who today are saying, not after Monday, hey... Hold on. We don't want to be part of this anymore. It's a percentage of the population, and I'm hearing from people who feel that way very, very strongly, as you can imagine. Absolutely. Do you, given what you've experienced in Quebec and, uh, and and your sentiments, have a soft spot in your heart for Albertans who feel that way?
2: Absolutely. Uh, and and in in fact, in fact, I can understand it. This is a large country, uh, in terms geographically, from one coast to another, with different needs from one coast to another, and it was built on a confederation. The day federalists tried to turn this into uh, an Ottawa-based, strong, federal, federal-led federal countries, it became impossible. So now we felt it in Quebec because we felt that the federal government didn't respond to our aspirations and our values long before. And now Albertans are feeling the same way. I believe, and we've discussed this before, you and I, I don't believe this confederation works in the state that it is in today.
0: Can it? With with, um, with 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 hard work, is it possible for us it, to come together, including Quebec, including the West, and, and and have one unified country moving forward? Do you think
2: um, a unified country? Yes, a, a country with a strong uh, national federal government will not work. I hear you. Pro- provinces have to be able to. You know, we have we have some common goals. We have some common values. Uh, let's let's work on those and let the provinces. You know, let's not try and lord national policies over them. In other words, it would be so simple, Roy, if we could just go back to 1867, right? What in 1867? What did what was the federal government meant for? Uh, the army and controlling uh, the, the the dollar, the actual currency,
4: right? Yeah, yeah. They they formed and it yeah.
2: was a confederation. What yeah. what happened, particularly with? <clears throat> With Pierre Trudeau coming along, you know, trying to create a strong central government, it doesn't work.
0: Nino, you know, I've got to run, but I thank you for the call. I never got a chance to talk about pipelines. Get you next ah, time. Catch you next time. A wonderful thing. Thank you. Nino Colavecchio uh, from Montreal. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites.